Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending 3rd of March. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. This week, Clem Basto of Superfluity is filling in for Nat Harris, currently in the midst of a triumphant debut tour of Adelaide Fringe with Hannah Camilleri. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear the childhood superstitions we've brought with us into adulthood. Digger teaches us the best tools for big and tiny gardens and answers your questions. And Nick Fike shares more about the great swindle, the shell game behind Carbon Credits essay he's contributed to The Monthly. Dr. Jen explains the weird science of waking up. Clem lets us peek under the hood in her new world of car detailing. And we speak with Elisa Collar and Jack Bannister, the cast members who are performing around the country in Agatha Christie's iconic The Mousetrap. Triple R. So I was thinking the other day about childhood I don't know is superstitions the right term beliefs tenets you know long-held thoughts I went down to the prom for a bit of a reset just before um coming back to get started on work and and I was like I can't go to sleep until I've seen a shooting star because you know I need to make my wish (laughs) oh is that something that you do when you go to the prom well like stargazing yeah but yeah I was really struck by I was like oh I haven't seen one yet and you know we used to be like no satellite doesn't count any any sort of like slow moving I guess it's space junk But, yeah, that one. And then I was talking to a friend the other day and we are talking about, you know, whether or not as, as kids you held your breath going past a cemetery in the car. Mm. Um, and another friend who said that their family, was like, you had to go to the toilet after you went past the cemetery, which I'd never heard, which well, I kind variation. of love. I love the variations. Like one is like not letting the ghost see and the other one is like expelling the ghost, I guess. The, the cemetery one, I, all that happens is the reflex. I cannot not think of two jokes, which is... <laughs> One, dead centre of town, and two, people, hey. people are dying to get in there. <laughs> and and I, I have to slap myself every single time because it's just Pavlovian, these dad jokes or whatever that I hear when I go across the cemetery. I'd rather have to go to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> with, with the holding yeah. of the breath, though, is that something that you both experienced when you went under long tunnels? Or is no. That, oh. So, yeah, it must have been a, another variation on that. But w- um, Was that any, any, like a channel t- No, actually, you, you'd die, wouldn't you, if you went the channel t- <laughs> <laughs> You'd definitely need an oxygen mask and a, a tank of some description. But um, definitely would characterise myself as a very superstitious person and there are several that I've held on to from right. childhood, definitely, but maybe the strongest one of them all, which is very seasonally relevant, is the catching of a leaf during this season. Have I you, love this. Have you ever heard about... No. I've not. This one? So I was just told, I think, because I've discovered after reading a little bit about it that it does originate in northern England where my mum my grew up and apparently if you catch a leaf during the autumn season at any point, uh, you are guaranteed to water... F- colds during winter but it's there's also sort of uh, other variations that include just general good luck if you manage to catch a leaf so for people that are struggling with the transition from summer into autumn it can be something of a fun activity to reconcile yourself to the season although the only thing that i would worry about is remember was it last year when the deciduous trees didn't drop until like (laughs) august (laughs) i'm not proud to admit that there were was a year a few years ago i've I've held on to this one so strongly that on the the 31st of may i was like sort of walking around for two hours in Carlton Gardens after dark. Trying to find a leaf. Just waiting for a leaf. (laughs) (laughs) After dark? Yeah, the the difficulty was immense. Extraordinary. And I I don't mean to dredge this up. Did you fail that evening? No, I I succeeded. (laughs) But I'm hoping that, yeah, anyone who might have been watching on CCTV was sympathetic to the cause. (laughs) Otherwise, I just looked like someone who was troubled. Are you allowed to cheat in your own superstitions? Like if you're, like, shaking a branch or whatever? Uh, This is one, I mean... 
Under some circumstances, I can imagine myself, yeah, bending the rules. But this is one where I kind of know the leap has to be of its own volition. I think it's a bit like that with me and shooting stars. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. And that also, like, I don't know if you've played Animal Crossing, but there's a lot of, like, you get your butterfly net out and catch leaves and petals and stuff in the air. So it sort of oh. feels like a real world, you know, corollary to that. But you <laughs> totally. can't, yeah, if you shake a tree in Animal Crossing, you can't catch any leaves. Yeah. So you've got to just rely on nature. And did you find the – have you ever tried to convince yourself that the, the space junk or the shot down <laughs> Was <laughs> no. Well, though, I mean, I don't know. What's a star? Like, maybe, maybe, oh, maybe I have to think about. What that. about a meteor? Is that a that counts? That does count. Well, but I guess it, that's what a shooting star is, isn't? Is it? Oh. Well, I guess a star is a star, <laughs> a big ball of gas. But is, is, if 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 there is a meteor shower, is that always in the news? Ah, uh, the big ones, like yeah. the, what is it, the Perseids, the Geminids, like, yeah. like which I saw one of them. I can't remember which one it was. It was later in the year, up in the Dandenongs. It was unbelievable. Mm. But yeah, and is this a like? The, is it a cleansing start of the new year thing? You needed your wish to get the good year on a roll. Maybe, yeah. I'm sort of not much of a New Year's resolutions person. I sort of believe in like checking in throughout the year. But that was, yeah, there was a bit of that. I think. And did you ever go up on your roof? Was that a thing? We had a roof terrace growing up. We lived in an old pub down in Port Melbourne before it turned into Miami Beach. And yeah, we that was great for um, for stargazing because obviously there wasn't much. Um, light pollution back then but you know you can still see quite a bit like even in living in Brunswick you just have to kind of adjust for a bit longer yeah but my friend saw the um that green comet um and she's out in the eastern suburbs um so yeah the, anything's possible exactly I feel like I must I have such bad luck I must have been making all my wishes on Starlink that's what I feel now <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R dirt 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 it's where you grow your plants dirt Justin Digger Carvely is here to field your pressing horticultural conundrums on 0466981027. Morning, Digger. Morning. Now, I can't imagine you're wanting for tools. Nah, I bloody love them. <laughs> well, last, time you came, last time you came in, you had two secateurs coming out of your left and right pocket. I've only got the single today because you just never know. <laughs> so I might cut you off here. <laughs> um, yeah, love, love the tools, pegboard, you know, that kind of thing. Love them, the catalogues, circle them, leave them lying around the house. <laughs> just as yeah. hints. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't need any of them. Probably use them you know, once every five years. But I just love having the option of the right tool for are, the right are job. Are there ones that are too good to use? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got a, I'm lucky enough that um, I've still got the old wooden chest made by my grandfather and he made all of his own oh, wow. like, timber tools, like wooden box planes and those kind of Beautiful. things. And I've still got them all and they never get touched. Yeah. If I see the kids go near them, <laughs> nothing to do with their safety. <laughs> preserving the integrity yeah. of them. Yeah. They'll be yeah. talked to very sternly. Yes. Um, so, what, what tools are out there for gardens for big and small? Well, that's just it. You know, you've really got to think about you know, the scale of everything. Everything scales up the, the larger your garden gets. But, you know, with the rise, obviously, a lot more people are living in um, smaller apartments and. Uh, you know, have balconies rather than courtyards and courtyards rather than large gardens. You've got to, you know, look at what you need. And, look, there's essentials and then there's tools that are very handy to have. So I thought I'd just go some basic essentials today. So number one is, you know, obviously the secretaires. You aren't, you know, 
it's very difficult. Picking off, you know, branches, woody branches with your fingernails ain't fun. Mm. So, um, and yeah, do the roses with bare hands and you're going <laughs> to no, regret it. I'm paraphrasing a listener. Do uh, newbie horticulturalists ever get sent to the hardware store for left-handed secretaires? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, funny enough, they exist. They do They're exist. They're a real thing. Yeah, and, absolutely. And so when you are doing, and this is a real question, when you are doing them simultaneously, you yeah. have a right-hand and a left-hand secretaires. I don't. I do them okay. both with normal right-hand secretaires. Secretaires, right. but um, yeah, you can get left-handed secretaries. Okay, there you go. Yeah, um, so you know, usually it's for the shovel, the left-handed shovel, mm. but you know, they don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so, so secretaries is essential if you're going to be a gardener, whether it's on a balcony or whether you've got an acre, mm. you're going to need secretaries. And obviously, the range is huge. You buy the second most expensive you can afford, and you know. Hopefully, look after them. Get yourself a holster. I know I sound like a broken record. I've said it on this show, I think seventy-eight times now. <laughs> um, but it just means that you know you're going to have them forever. It's kind of like looking after your good kitchen knives or your good pots and pans. Mm. If it's something you're going to use all the time, look after it. I yeah. invested in a secateur to a maintenance kit, and I felt very grown up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A little oh. sharpener, some oil. Oh, note to self: grow up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, yeah, that's right across the board. Then from there, obviously, you're going to do some sort of digging in the garden. So if you're on a balcony, you've got pots to dig. You scale right down. You're going to need some hand trowels and a, and a little fork. So just a simple little hand. If you've got a larger garden, obviously, you move up then to long-handled shovels and rakes. It's essentially the same thing. Probably the biggest difference would be in you're going to cart materials around. So even if you're in a balcony carting potting mixes and those kind of things. So you can get little collapsible caddies these days. You ever seen that they're like they've got mm. little four wheels and a little handle and they all collapse down? You've probably seen people carting their kids down the beach with those kind oh, of yeah, things. Something like that. Well there's gardening versions of them. So if you're low on space they do collapse down. But you need to be able to move things around. Obviously in a larger garden we've got wheelbarrows. Gardening wheelbarrows are very different to most of the wheelbarrows you'd see at the hardware stores. They're the plastic bucket ones. So for gardening, plastic buckets, you don't need the big steel bucket. We're not mixing concrete in them and those kind of things. So something to move materials around. I would even say if you've got a very tiny balcony, even just buckets themselves, really handy. Leave them out. It's just started to rain this morning. Leave them out. Collect rainwater because that's the best water you can get for your your garden. Um, So, yeah, just leave buckets lying around. You're off at work. I know it looks a bit weird if your balcony's full of buckets, but, you know, if you're... At work, or if you're working from home, just turn around and don't look at them. <laughs> well, now, well, now we know it's a signal of a conscientious gardener. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because right. then they become your rain gauge. Yeah, and rain gauges are really important. There is one I'll leave for last, the absolute, you know, number one for all gardeners. But that one leads me on to um, some way of watering, because you know we've got to water whether it be pots or it's a large garden. So, if you're just on a balcony or a small garden. Um, ask for presents. Remember that old? I just, I've always wanted one, never had one. The super deluxe metal watering oh. can with the brace on it and the big rosette that's turned upside down. You know, you see it in all the classic movies. I've never owned one. They're about 130, 150 bucks a pop. Um, what a beautiful thing. What a beautiful present to give a new gardener is a beautiful watering can. What are these digger brats of yours not coming through <laughs> with this? They're, they're spoiled digger brats, aren't they, bloody <laughs> uh, Back in my day. <laughs> uh, we have a few questions we want to throw you away. I've Go had a it. devil's ivy for years now, mm. 
and the new growth is fine. It's going and going and even sprouted another shoot and that's growing well. But many of the older or first leaves have died and dropped off. What does it need to be happy all the way along? Uh, nothing. That's what it does. <laughs> so it will have bare stems as they get older and that's the, that's the habit of a creeper or a sprawler mm-hmm. so that they actually rob nutrient from their old foliage and send it into the new growth and the new generation take over. So it's doing exactly what it's evolved to do. Okay. Uh, my potted mulberry of two years, l- l- the leaves are gr- going yellow. Are there any tips? Uh, we plan to plant it soon in sandy Anglesey ground. Yeah, okay. So it could be temperature now. There is a lot of deciduous trees. We've ticked over the 1st of March. Summer is you know, over as far as Gregorian says. <laughs> um, so <laughs> there is an accompanying photo of that uh, right. Valley. Oh, that's a whole stack of nutrient deficiency. So you've got drying out, you've got magnesium deficiency, iron deficiency and uh, needs more nitrogen. So get yourself a balanced fertiliser. Yeah. (laughs) So one of those pelletised fertilisers are fairly balanced in their NPK and trace elements. And soak, get a couple of handfuls and soak them in a bucket of water. See, there, you need buckets. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For a few days until you can make a little slurry and then dilute that down to a weak tea and hydrate that plant and feed it very, very quickly because it's in strife. Right. I just saw a photo of it. Yeah, it's in strife. Tremendous advice. Uh, We have more pictorial... if, I should get myself uh, one of these computer here. things. How do I help my poor old lemon tree? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> oh, look at it. Mate, that is in all sorts of strife. Okay. Can you describe but, it? Yeah. So so whole stack of nutrient deficiency. It's shedding. It's got a little bit of dieback, which is, you know, a, a fungal infection into the into the main branches. Um that fertiliser I just mentioned to the last caller get the same thing, but depending on how big that tree is, if it's a large tree, you're going to need about 60 litres of nutrient for it. But water it first and then come try and get it through the winter and then just as spring kicks in, let's say late August, go to town on it and cut it about two foot from the ground. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Isn't <laughs> I, find, I, I find intense pruning so difficult to do, but it, but it is it is really helpful, isn't it, for a lot of plants? Oh, for a lot of plants, it's the best thing you could possibly do for them is just to renew it all, like put them out of their misery. And you know, <laughs> they've got this established root system. Again, they're evolved to do it. Dinosaurs mm. have been munching on plants forever. They can they can come back. Most of them, I, I've got to put a caveat on that. Yeah, some plants just will not like it. So, yeah. Ring in and ask if you're unsure. Right. <laughs> uh, so we've got our buckets. We've got our secateurs. Yep. Um, so tapware, if you're in large gardens, good tapware, good hoses is, you know, unbeatable. Stop mucking around with the stupid plastic connections <laughs> that are cheap and they pop off and they crack all the time. It's, I think it's I'm all with you, Clem, about yeah. it's time to grow up and get some brass fittings. <laughs> you know, Sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, it really does make a difference and you have them for life. You ever been to someone, an old garden, and you see all these old brass oh, fittings? so on? good. It's so good. The patina on them, it's like... <gasps> I get the kids stop. Have a look. Have a look at this tapware. It's like it's got to be at least forty years. <laughs> Dad, <laughs> <laughs> underappreciated. Like, yeah, I just don't get it. Um, last but not least, and this goes right across the board. And I think we've got a whole segment in this. I was thinking about it before. Mm. Is um, the number one tool I always teach my students is observation. To be a good gardener, you must pay attention to every little detail. So I reckon the best tool would be a garden diary. to document everything you see. It's like, why is that cabbage moth here? There's a reason why it's there. 
why is it shady over there and dry over here? Why is it hot here and the, the leaves circling over there? Why is the plant growing now? Why is it dying? Yeah. Collecting data mm. makes you... Because that's the reason I can sit, come in here every two weeks and just bang things off quickly is I kept garden diaries as a, as a young gardener and then it's just seasonal repetition because I'm 160 now <laughs> and it's just repetition and repetition that if you document it, because then next year rolls around, it's like, oh, my lemon's looking a bit crappy again. What did I do last year? And it's all documented for you. And is this in a regular diary that you've got notes written on each day or do you have a separate entry for the different plants? Ah, so when I used to do them, it was literally exercise books and every time I went to the garden, no matter what, every observation, just dot point. And yeah. then in the cold, rainy weather, I'd go back in and collate them into species, season, um, jobs by the month, jobs by the day. And so it was just repeat, repeat, Fantastic. repeat. So Digger's Diaries will be a literary sensation. It will be. <laughs> like Helen Garner. They're gone. I've chucked them all out. <laughs> Because it's all in my head now. Now I've got, you know, I'm getting old and it's all gone. (laughs) Oh, no. So, yeah. Uh, What about my workplace, which is a school has bags of soil and fertiliser from, I'd say, five years ago. Is it still usable? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of stuff. Poo don't go off. It just breaks down. (laughs) um, Yeah, it's all just chock-a-block full of fungi and biome. So, yeah, get it out into the garden. Yeah, right. You were always one with the catchphrase, yeah. aren't you? <laughs> uh, we also have a listener who says it's too hard to change the full potting mix in a pot. Can you just top up the pot? Absolutely not. So all that happens is obviously you, you, know, you put your new plant into your pot with all this fresh potting mix all the way around it and then the roots fill the gaps in all directions. So by topping up the top, it makes no difference whatsoever. So I actually did some to my pots on the weekend. Hydrate them, so slowly soak the pot and then turn it on its side and slowly just wiggle the plant out. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that sounds like if it's a big pot, you might need you know, some help to, to tip it over. But once the plant just wiggles out, then it's a lot easier to redo. So, but it's got to be hydrated first. All right. And finally, my bird of paradise leaves aren't unfurling properly. What's that all about? Um, again, trace element deficiency. If they're staying curled and not opening completely. So, yeah, you've got to get yourself some trace elements and liquid fertilised with them. And that tea that you described, is it... Have you tasted it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, why wouldn't you? <laughs> you are a weird one. Uh, thanks, Digger. Talk next week. See ya. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. Australia is the third largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world and according to the body of scientists at the Global Carbon Project, global carbon dioxide emissions from all human activities last year hit record highs, rising above pre-pandemic levels. It's in this environment that writer Nick Fike has turned his eye to Australia's carbon offsets industry. In his new essay, The Great Swindle, and to tell us about this shell game behind carbon credits, the journalist and former editor of The Monthly, in which this essay appears, joins us now. Nick, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Because the, the degree of difficulty in this essay is quite high, isn't it? As you're right, the industry is complex and it's quite boring and that's maybe a feature of the system, not a bug. Uh, can you explain what this system is that you're analysing and how it's supposed to work? I'll try to explain it briefly. But, yeah, the whole point of this essay really was because I was looking at this into, into carbon offsets because it's become the main feature of Australia's carbon reduction effort. And the more I looked into it, the, the worse it seemed to get. But when I talk to people about it, you know, the moment that you say carbon offsets or safeguard mechanism, people's eyes just glaze on that. It, it's almost impossible to sort of to, um, to read whether or not they're taking anything in. So I thought, this is such a crucial area of our climate policy and yet no one understands it. 
I think um, it's in all of our interest if we walk, step through these things one by one. So that's what this essay is an attempt to do. But, you know, once you start to do this, you get into extremely complex areas. So I guess for, for me, the, the point of it is to try to simplify as much as possible without, without you know, abbreviating um, unfairly what the system that, we're, that the current government is proposing is. So... The Albanese government obviously came into power. There were high expectations for it. They were talking about finally having net zero by 2050 target and 43% by 2030. But in fact, a lot of the policy that they're proposing is related to just one set, one subset of uh, our our emitters, it's the major polluters, and they do take care of about 45 to 50% of our pollution. But the way that the safeguard mechanism is set up is that it's proposing that instead of reducing your emissions, you can offset them, you can buy carbon offset. So this is like saying um, you can buy a piece of paper from someone that says they've grown a large number of trees somewhere, and that's an equivalent to you cutting your own emissions. Now, it doesn't, you know, it sounds good in practice when you say one tonne of emissions equals one tonne of, 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 uh, of offsets, but in practice, most of the offsets, as I looked into them, are just not so reliable that they're illegitimate in in the words of you know there's a bunch of scientific of academics have looked into this and they just can't figure out how you would get to this sum of one ton of emissions equals one ton of offsets and the entire policy that the uh, that the coalition that the uh, Albanese government is proposing is saying you can use as many offsets as you possibly want to to meet your emissions your, your reduction obligations. So these Australian carbon credit units uh, that, you know, can be exercised using different methods, including tree planting, land use changes, landfill gas burning, what, in what ways are they in some ways scams? Well, for example, the avoided deforestation method is where a farmer says, I have a permit to clear this land, uh, and but I'm not going to use it. So I'm therefore saving a tonne of, of emissions. In fact, what, what it essentially means is that carbon aggregators, the carbon farmers, have gone to actual farmers and they've said, here's all this land that you've got and it's got trees on it. How about we say... Uh, you, how about you say, I was going to cut this down, but now I'm not. So essentially, the farmer is literally doing nothing and they've collected a, a carbon credit or in, in you know, thousands, in, in our case, millions of carbon credits. So large chunks of western New South Wales that were never going to be cleared. I mean, if they were cleared, you wouldn't have had enough bulldozers. Uh, so people are collecting carbon credits from not doing something that they weren't going to do. A, another crucial method... The, the biggest method is one called human-induced regeneration, which is where you say, I'm removing the suppressants from, from my section of land, so I'm moving cattle off it, for example, or I'm clearing some pests. Or, and that alone is going to cause massive tree growth on this land. Now, you can do that in any number of ways, and people did, 
And in fact, when you go back to the lands that, that's been uh, allocated for these credits, you actually now have less forest than you used to. The main drivers of tree growth, in fact, you know, you'd be surprised to hear this, guys, but rain... <laughs> What? Rain rain's the thing that causes trees to grow the most. It's not moving stray cattle off land that in some cases already has trees on it. These these methods that I just mentioned are the two biggest methods by which Australians have, have generated carbon credits. Nick, I think one of the really, you know, compelling points that you make in the article is that the, the, the one of the main issues with the carbon credits and offsets program is that essentially the fossil fuel companies can actually expand while buying them. So it's not, you know, having these offsets isn't contingent upon any sense that the pollution will actually be minimised. If anything, they can continue to create new, you know, mines, refineries, and then they just buy an offset and say, look, we've done our bit. That that is just, you know, mind-boggling. It's an astonishing hole in the system that that a company like Woodside can be planning to open a, a new project like Scarborough. So Scarborough is essentially in Western Australia. It's mostly for export. So the gas that's being produced, they're, they're saying it's 1.4 billion tonnes of uh, emissions over the course of its lifetime. That's more per year then the entire offset mechanism is seeking to abate, right? 40, 40 million tonnes per year over 30 years. That each year is a bigger number than the offset, uh, than the safeguard mechanism is planning to, to abate. Now, the reason they can do that is that most of the gas being counted from the emissions from uh from the Scarborough project is being exported. So we don't count the emissions on exported gas. So we're only counting the 10% of emissions that are made in the process of producing the gas. So what happens overseas, not our problem. That's literally what the system is. Now, you talk. that's one project that already blows out the entire um, safeguard mechanism out of the water. There are over 100 projects in Australia that are on the books in the development pipeline. You know, just yesterday, they're talking about eight coal projects in New South Wales that equal a, a number, a, an emissions amount larger than the, than the uh, safeguard mechanism. I mean, it's nuts. You're right that, uh, you know, the measurements and calculations are difficult and require expertise and you need to be an accountant and a scientific specialist with a sideline in environmental policy. So has an industry popped up where, you know, people with expertise can maybe exploit these credits? Look, of course, of course there is. And it's it's such a... It's an area where everyone... Um, wants to get involved because the government thinks that they can suddenly make money, they can they can push money to farmers, right? And then suddenly you have scientists realising that they can make money from measuring things, and you have the fossil fuel companies realising that they can make money from from uh, buying offsets instead of reducing their own pollutions. Uh, you have carbon aggregators. Everyone gets to have their little piece of the pie. Uh, even environmental groups have got involved, thinking, well, if we restore this beautiful bit of land, guess what? We can actually collect some money on the side. So it, that becomes a profitable activity. Now, of course, of course, growing trees, etc., is good for the land. But 
when you're using every single bit of the credit that you get from that to then expand a gas plant, that's not a good system for the environment. It's a terrible system where every single good thing that you do is reversed out by a process that leads to much more gas in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the atmosphere. Is the system go- is the, sorry, is the system going anywhere? Well, I don't think it is. Um, at the moment, even the Greens said that they... Look, the Greens' first, uh, first negotiating position and safeguard mechanism was obviously to ask for new, no new gas or coal mines, and I don't think that's going to fly with the government. So their next step will be to try to amend the safeguard to limit the use of offsets or the type of offsets that are being used, like to try and knock out some of the categories, for example, you know, to say that certain avoided deforestation credits can't be used or something like that. But it's, it's so baked into the system now, this offset method. I mean, think about under the Gillard government, we had a, an economy-wide emissions reduction scheme. Everyone was involved in, in the reduction effort. Now you have literally 215, the 215 biggest facilities and all of their methods are based on a system of carbon offsets. Now, I mean, personally, I would, I'd trash the entire thing and start again, but um, I, don't think, I don't think that's going to happen. Mm. Well, to read more of Nick's thoughts and journalism, the great swindle, the shell game behind carbon credits is his new essay in this March issue of The Monthly. You'll also be uh, appearing publicly, uh, which we won't get into the details of that, I suppose, but Wednesday, 8th of March, you're... Uh, on stage talking about this essay, but maybe get a copy first of In the Monthly. Thanks very much, guys. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Nick Fike. Triple R. Infamous early bird, Dr. Jen joins us for some weird science on breakfast. It's top of the morning to you. Top of the morning to you, Daniel. Yeah, I thought we should talk about how alert we're all feeling. Daniel, how did you feel when you woke up this morning? <laughs> Always amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can testify. That's true. <laughs> I don't know if I trust mm. you, young man. I will take no further questions. <laughs> I was thinking about you, Simon, because, you know, you're still adapting to this whole new uh, body clock of being a breakfaster. Adapting is a very going? generous description. <laughs> <laughs> Struggling is probably more accurate. And this week has been particularly difficult because not to you know a, a sort of invite sympathy or anything but our apartment complex had a evacuation alarm happen yesterday morning at 2 30 a.m which was a, a beautiful opportunity to say hello to neighbors you might otherwise never see but <laughs> in your in your pajamas indeed <laughs> but yeah it's been a bit of a struggle i'm guessing you didn't manage to go back to sleep exactly after that that's right i was yeah. quite alert after that experience i think we should all shower him with sympathy yeah. don't you think i, I think that sounds awful oh, thank you <laughs> Yeah, I love the way, just quickly, that he instantly framed it as an opportunity to make yeah. a beautiful moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what can we be doing in the morning? Well, so I, when I sort of saw this article, I was thinking, surely we all know what it takes to wake up to feel alert. You know, mm. we, we know how good you feel. Some mornings you wake up and you think, oh, I just feel fabulous. I'm really looking forward to the day. Other days you just feel rotten and you drag yourself out of bed and, and you're 
potentially feeling crap for a long time. You know, it's not just that moment of waking, it's the whole morning or even the whole day you feel terrible. And I sort of think we know the basics, right? Sleep, we all know sleep's important. Um, A lot of us know we don't sleep as well if we drink alcohol, very boring. Um, We know that if you've done some exercise, it might help you to sleep better. You know, we sort of know the basic stress. Obviously, we know stress can impact sleep. So I sort of thought this was done and dusted and we didn't need to ask these questions anymore because it was so obvious. But it turns out that we don't actually have a, or until this study at least, I hadn't found sort of a recipe for if you want to feel alert when you wake up in the morning, this is what you should do. So this is a new study that was published at the end of last year and they identified four hypotheses that they thought were worth testing that they hadn't that hadn't been tested before. So they had about a thousand people in the study from the US and the UK. So the first hypothesis is pretty obvious, how well you slept the night before is going to impact how alert you feel. So how long you slept, how well you slept and when you slept, you know, if you got a six or a seven hour window, when was it during the night so that was the first thing they tested the next thing they tested was whether having lots of exercise the day before would predict being alert the next morning probably you know you fall asleep more quickly I don't know because you're physically tired whatever it is anyway they Mm -hmm. wanted to test that the next one which I hadn't really thought about was they tested what you ate for breakfast Mm -hmm. so specifically the macronutrient composition of your breakfast so are you eating a high carb high fiber high protein high fat you know, something for breakfast. And also they tested a pure sugar breakfast. (laughs) Wow. That's going to be tasty. Someone's got to do it. Yeah, someone's got to do it. That's right. Um, And then the last thing was they said, well, they're all lifestyle factors that we can have an impact on, but maybe it's just genetic. You know, I, you know, we've talked about me being a crazy early riser. My brother's a crazy early riser. My dad's a crazy early riser. Maybe it's just genetic and it doesn't care. It doesn't matter what you do. So that's what they tested. And so they got all of their participants to do a whole lot of surveys. How well do you normally sleep? How much alcohol do you consume? Caffeine? How much exercise do you get? Have you ever had a diagnosis of anxiety or depression? They wanted to know that as well. And then over two weeks, basically, people wore um, activity monitors to monitor every move they made in terms of exercise and how well they slept because, you know, you can determine how well someone sleeps. And they also made them wear a um, constant, um, uh, like a glucose monitor to see how their body was responding to what they were eating. So basically they tested everything and they made them eat these standardised meals. So, you know, you get one muffin or you get two muffins or, Simon, you only get sugar or you get <laughs> okay, you know, whatever it is. And don't give it to your neighbours at 3 a.m. <laughs> That's it. Oh, maybe that would be how to make really good friends with your neighbours. <laughs> Anyway, so you get it. They basically measured everything. They collected everything they could and then chucked it all into the big, you know, data machine to say, well, what does this tell us? Um, And it turns out genetics is not playing a role at all. Hmm. So I can't put anything down to my genetics. I mean, you know, there was some effect, but a really non-significant effect. Basically, it came down to four things. Unsurprisingly, how well you slept the night before. So if you have a crap sleep or you don't sleep enough, of course, that's going to impact how alert you feel. The second one was very clearly the more physical activity you get the day before, the better you're going to feel the next day. Damn. So if you did no exercise <laughs> yesterday and you're feeling sluggish this morning, there is this study would suggest there's definitely a link there. Mm-hmm. So get some exercise, can definitely help. Um, the next one was we want a breakfast rich in carbohydrates. Hmm. Interesting. But not just pure sugar. Okay. Sugar makes you crash. But, you know, so I guess we're thinking oats, you know, whole grain breads, some sort of complex carbohydrates is good. So um, anyone who is following a diet where they're doing really high protein or really high fat diets, the suggestion is that that's not going to lead you to feel alert the next day. 
Um, and then also having a lower blood glucose response. So that's why it needs to be complex carbohydrates with a you know low GI rather than Simon's you know lemonade. <laughs> Mars bar is <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I think, like, that is good, right? Because all of those things are in our control. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. It's, it's not difficult. Get some exercise, get a decent night's sleep, have some, you know, whole grain toast for breakfast, and you are probably going to feel reasonably alert when you wake up and for, for that day, for the morning. Did they narrow down what the optimum, like, sort of sleep window is? Because I, ne- I never know. I, don't, I have an activity tracker, which I'm trying to do sleep stuff with, and yep. it freaks out if I'm getting less than eight hours. But I feel like se- seven, eight, is it is it that much of a big difference? I think what this study tells us, which I really like, is that it's completely dependent on the individual. Right. You know, there is no golden rule. For some people, they need to be asleep by 10 p.m. Some people can happily be awake till 2 a.m. And if their lifestyle allows them to then sleep for their six or eight hour window. Mm. So there's no recipe in that sense, but it's um, it's you feeling like you've had enough sleep. So one of the really interesting things that came out of this study was that they found even taking all of those things into control, people tend to have a set point. Yeah. You know, some people just feel typically really alert in the morning. I'm one of those people. Some people tend to just not feel alert in the morning. Morning, even if they do all of those things right. So they called that a, an alertness set point. Um, and they found that, again, you would think that might be influenced by genetics. That's not what they found. They found one was your mood, so your self-reported happiness. So if you wake up unsurprisingly feeling happy, optimistic, you feel like you've got something to look forward to <laughs> that day, then you feel more alert. Whereas if you are struggling with depression or anxiety or other difficult things going on in your life, it's not surprising that that turns into... I don't feel very alert this morning. So that was one. And the other thing was self-reported sleep quality, Mm. right? So it doesn't matter if you got five hours or 10 hours. It's whether you feel like you've had a good sleep or not that has the impact. So I don't know. I feel like sometimes we can fall into traps. If you look at your tracker and your tracker tells you that you had a poor night's sleep and that turns into you thinking, oh, I need more sleep. As opposed to how you're actually feeling. Yeah, as opposed to just kind of sitting for a moment thinking, how do I feel? You know, do I feel like I can take on the day? And I think it's easy for us to kind of talk about in the context of you guys being breakfast radio hosts that feeling alert in the morning is important. But what I was thinking about is this is actually really important for people who perform jobs early in the morning. I don't know whether you're a surgeon or a pilot or yeah. whatever you do. I mean, there are so many jobs, people working with potentially dangerous tools out on work sites, you know. Being alert in the morning is actually really important. Road accidents, you know, how many road accidents happen because people are just kind of having a little micro nap? Mm. Absolutely. And getting up, I wonder if, and I don't expect the research to bear this out, but some people get up, you know, for virtue by virtue of their work. Maybe does is does that mean their morning changes? Like, if you're getting up at eight pm, is that? I wonder if that's your morning. Like, is morning a byword here for upon awakening? Well, I think that's a really good point, Daniel, because that brings up all of the stuff we know about people who work, you know, who do shift work. And I'm pretty sure I'm right in thinking that shift work has now been um, considered by the World Health Organization as a carcinogen. Right. You know, wow. Because, because you can say, Daniel, that yes, if you're a shift worker and your morning is 8pm, but we know that we have body clocks that are still primed from early our early times of being human that respond to light. You know, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but, but I'm pretty sure we know that our body 
bodies do respond to light and it's actually really hard to train yourself to feel alert when actually the signals from the earth around you are, no, it's, it's night time, it's mm. dark now. So I think it's really hard. Do you avoid technology telling you how you're going? <laughs> no, I'm a total data nerd. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> it's you great, know, isn't it? I'm an absolute data nerd. I constantly track all sorts of things. But I have learned not to get sucked into just because my device is telling me I didn't get enough sleep to assuming that that means I'm going to feel exhausted or or drowsy all day. I have tried to step back and say, isn't that interesting that the data says this, but actually there's clearly another factor going on, which could be mood, right? Maybe I've got something that I'm really excited about that day and that helps me to feel more alert. But I don't know, the main thing about this study I just love is that it is in our control. So you can choose to to do whatever you want and deal with the fact that you might feel very drowsy uh, the next morning. But if it's important to you, either for safety or for other reasons, to feel alert in the morning, this study suggests that it is pretty much in our control to do the things that are going to make us feel great yeah. when we wake up in the morning. How valuable to have these train tracks yeah. to help us. Yeah, absolutely. Sleep, diet, exercise... And is there a fourth or where, if, if we were to just summarise there? Not doing breakfast radio. Not doing breakfast radio, <laughs> exactly. That'll help. Uh, Dr. Jen, thank you very much for sharing your morning with us. Sleep well, everybody. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience of uh, realising something or discovering something and then being unable to stop seeing it everywhere. Mm. So I... Uh, for those who have not tuned into Superfluity and heard me mentioning this literally every week for the last four years, I have been doing a PhD uh, and I'm in the process of finishing up. And, and according to everyone I know who's done one, the last six months are the real like existential crisis era you there's no more daydreaming you're just sitting down trying to write the thing and and it's been so long that you're just desperately trying to think of literally anything else you could do um my brother said he was he was planning to become a bricklayer i know a lot of other people who've like gotten jobs in bakeries like just to kind of get get a bit of uh free brain space so i've been really getting into car detail (laughs) um and as a result uh i've been kind of starting with some achievable you know entry-level skills to learn um, I've discovered headlight restoration and now I can't stop looking at cars and just being shocked at their headlights. What's the standard like out there? Pretty bad. <laughs> um, you know, there's a variety. There's a sliding scale of, of you know, a bit, a bit oxidised all the way up to something that the police would give you a defect notice for. Mm. But now I'm in this sort of awkward position where... You know, I'm 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 looking to like upskill by actually doing it for other people, where you have to you know take take care of your work. But how do you say to somebody, "Hey, I noticed your car's headlights are really screwed up"? Like, it's a bit like I feel like it's like commenting on people's you know animal husbandry or, or parenting. Like, yes. there's no nice way to say it. It's a tricky subject. And yeah. someone was saying, "Could you put like a little notice under their their windscreen wipers?" I just feel like that's too mean. It's like when you get those things in letterbox, which are like you know house painting or whatever. You're like, what are you trying to say? Like, <laughs> You've just got to do it, don't you? Yeah. Uh, and hope that it's received with the loving and good intentions. With- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's really – it's quite fascinating. But it is – it's like I've unlocked this – I guess if it was a video game, I should have mentioned this to Adam. It's like I've unlocked the skill tree and now, you know, aspects of the gameplay are available uh, to me. Please forgive my ignorance, but with regards to headlight <laughs> restoration, what is involved and how do you know? Well, it depends. Um, okay. So it's like a multi-stage process. I mean, there's a lot of things out there that people can go and buy which claim to do the job. Some of them are all right. Um, but headlights are acrylic. So uh, acrylic has, you know, a number of very, very small layers that you can remove and then 
polish up. Uh, so they can be affected by sunlight, general use, tar, road trauma, like... Um, so they might get kind of hazy looking, they might have scratches on them, they might eventually all the way up to going basically like a frosted glass 1970s window. Um, so yeah, you can just sand, you sand it back and then you polish it up again and uh, they can look as good as new. I but see. So you could position yourself as a student or apprentice well. and, ask, and <laughs> ask people for the opportunity to practice your new skills potentially as a way of approaching it. Oh, look, I'd love that. But it is, it is very funny because it's like I can tell that in part it is – a byproduct of being in this, you know, crunch time of a PhD. But it is also, it does also feel a bit like maybe at 40, I've actually discovered like a, a job that I really want to do. Yeah. Is it a coincidence that the headlights at the front of the car? Like, do, are you starting at the front and moving to the back? Yeah, there are, it's a small area, you know, you can you can do it with tools that are kind of more readily available. You don't have to go to pick apart and like get a whole door of a car to practice. Mm. Um, and yeah, I guess because I bought a secondhand car, it's, you know, it was in all right condition, but, but it's, it's got a few things that I can fix up and kind of practice on myself. But yeah, it's really, it's interesting because I've never really thought of myself as much of a kind of practical, you know, skills based or yeah. not, not usable skills. <laughs> like costume stuff, great, but nothing kind of re- with real world application. Is there a make of car out there that has a headlight that you're like that is a that is good headlight that is being overlooked broadly <laughs> do you know i have a real soft i mean i drive a nissan micro they're not they're not a they're very prevalent in australia but apparently the car snobs don't like them but i think the the k12 2009 micro has got a great headlight mm. but very difficult to sand it's got also it's like a little what are those bachi chocolates it's like it's a weird shape <laughs> <laughs> and uh what is the because what's a pet hate about headlights because it i mean fog lights appear to be a bit annoying or I don't I think there's like new bulbs which are very dazzling just by virtue of being you know more powerful so I often find I'm kind of blinded by people who I in my mind am accusing of, of high beaming me but it's actually just their normal headlights <laughs> exactly so would that be a feature <laughs> would you would you if you were king for a day yes. would you Regulate yeah, the intensity absolutely. of headlights. Absolutely, I'm sure there are. I mean, text in if you if you have also experienced this. But yeah, there, there's there's a there's an aspect to modern headlights which is, I mean, I don't want to say dangerous because obviously they do the job for the driver of that car. Yes, but when they're in your in your rear views, yeah, you have to move your mirror because you you can't deal with the reflection. Oh, I've had times where I've had to drive almost like a dog with my head out the window because I just can't get away from the the glare of it. Yeah, and then there are all those like. I think they're called angel eye. You see them in your rear view where it looks like like a sort of cartoon character behind you, like the rings. Like that's a really popular headlight. Right. I don't know. Well, is there something in the car detailer's toolkit that you've got now? <laughs> I have got so much kit, it's actually a bit embarrassing. Uh, there's even things that I didn't, you know, it's like one of those things where you start to learn a skill and you, you it, it was similar when I got into cake decorating. You yeah. Know, you discover these things that you just have never even heard of before. And, and for we me, should say you're an award-winning cake de- decorator. So this could be the beginning of a, an well, award-winning hopefully. detailing career. Um, yeah, there's like like grit guards that go in the bottom of your buckets so that when you're squeezing your sponge out, if any like little stones or grits or dead bugs come out of them they they go beneath this thing which what a great invention so hats off to whoever you know extruded that from plastic for the first time okay and so the point of that is so that when you go back into the bucket the grit doesn't come yeah with you. you're not picking it up again so mm. it sort of sits underneath this like sort of looks like a potholder thing mm. and do you need a, a trolley on wheels or you're not going under the car not under the car no i mean it's basically elevated car washing yeah <laughs> at this point but you never know i might end up angle grinding or 
or, or doing a full cut and polish one day? I'm too embarrassed to ask for my car to be seen to. I'd love to look. I'll pay you. I desperately, <laughs> my headlights are atrocious. Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. Originally written as a short radio play broadcast in 1947 as a birthday present for Queen Mary, Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap was later adapted to the stage and has come to be the longest-running show on the West End and enjoyed the longest run of any play anywhere in the world, with over 28,500 performances and counting. To celebrate the production's 70th year, the much-loved murder mystery is touring Australia and is playing the Comedy Theatre. And to tell us about their roles in the show, we're joined by cast members Elisa Collar and Jack Bannister. Welcome both of you to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. It's our absolute pleasure. Now, you two share a dressing room, is that right? We do. <laughs> we do. We do. So, um, yeah, originally we didn't, um, but because we spent so much time off stage, we thought, why aren't we sharing the same room? They put us together. Yeah. yeah. Now, we're talking, this play is an ensemble, isn't it? A, a deeply ensemble. So, what, what's your role in the broader production? Well, we're technically standbys, so we both. Um, understudy three characters each there's a total of eight characters in the play so we do three each and then another standby covers the uh, the other two so we're essentially there if anyone is sick or needs days off or things like that we basically just sub into to any of the roles that we that we cover yeah there's something a little bit spooky about being an understudy in a murder <laughs> mystery isn't there it's not for the light of heart <laughs> <laughs> what's the shortest notice you've had Oh, I think, um, well, usually we will get, get given about three hours notice. Wow. Um, and I think the shortest for me may have been two and a half hours, but um, they'd like to give us as much notice as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like understudying is the, like, the uh, uh, unspoken superhero of the theatre world. It really is. Um, it's a very, yes, thankless job sometimes, but... Um, uh, we're very lucky in this company to have such a supportive group of people around us. Um, but yeah, it is it is definitely an unsung hero. Yes, role. superheroes. I think, yeah. we are superheroes, I think yeah. people don't realise when you go to a show and you get given the leaflet saying tonight's role will be played by it, that that's actually a real treat. Like that you're getting the opportunity to see somebody who you might not else otherwise see, but also somebody who has an almost like superhuman ability to swing into these different roles in a production. What's that like in in a murder mystery though? Yeah, well, it's interesting because you know your every character is so different, and and um, obviously there may be a murderer on stage, you know. So it's 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 kind of terrifying um, managing such an ensemble show as well with mm. with such different characters, um, and there's a lot of big ensemble scenes as well. So that's hard going from kind of one side of the stage to the other, you know, like day to day. Do you think that's part of the enduring appeal of the mousetrap? Because it, it almost made it to 70 years non-stop in the West End. You know, it's this enduring classic of theatre. Is that is that ensemble cast part of what brings people, you know, that range of characters? Yes, I think so. And I, and I also, I think we were saying this the other day that um, with all the sort of streaming platforms we have now, everyone's so into watching crime and mm. murder mysteries on TV that it, I just, it still has that appeal. Um yeah, I don't know. I just, it's it's amazing that it's lasted seventy years, um, but I just think maybe the yeah the uns, I don't know the ensemble. It's not like oh, there's just one main character. I don't I, I don't know. It's just got such an appeal, um, and we're very very fortunate to be uh, part of such a historical um, show. Well, absolutely, it is historic, and yes, it is. 
as you say, a, a masterpiece which has endured over the years. Your <laughs> own engagement with the work is probably more profound than most people because, as you mentioned, you're familiar with and able to inhabit so many of the characters. I suppose from that position, both of you, what are some of the more compelling themes or maybe the underappreciated themes that you're finding in the work? Well, it's very funny. That's, I think, something that a lot of people find really shocking is that it's, it's actually hilarious. Yeah. It's, it's, um, and I don't think, you know, as a company, we necessarily approached it as a comedy, but I think that sometimes brings out the, the hilarity of it. But it is very, very funny. Agatha is, a, is, a, is, is hilarious. There's so many little puns and, and, and things in there. Um, but it, it's also just very human, you know. I think it's easy to look at these murder mysteries as kind of... Uh, farcical characters and you know Poirot and stuff but it's it's really human all the characters are really really human people and there's a lot of heart in it as well yeah and you get to understand their motivations and what, what it is that drives them exactly. through your performance totally several of them which yeah. Is such <laughs> yeah. Yeah. do you each have a preference for who you'd rather play Listen, I my range of characters are from the age of 24 to 70. Um, so I've yet to play the 70-year-old, but <laughs> I think that's kind of one that I go, mm, I think I'd like to one day. Maybe not yet, um, but, yeah, I think that's probably, for me as an actress, a very exciting idea that I could go on as a 70-year-old. Yeah. Mm. And you mentioned the, uh, the tropes or maybe all of the murder mysteries that are available, but... I mean, a lot of these tropes, we might call them, were started with the mousetrap, it seems. You're the ground floor of all of it. Totally, it is. It's, the, it's like the, the, the cliché before it came a cliché, mm. which means it isn't a cliché, right? Yeah. Because it was original, <laughs> completely original at the time. But, yeah, there's so, there's so many things in there, and there's so many references that you find in pop culture, and you go, oh, that's, some, that's a line from the show or something, or that's a character or something. It's... Um, yeah, it is. But, but at the time, it was so original, and you can kind of feel that in the text, the commitment to those um, things that maybe these days would be seen as uh, as naff. It, it's so pure in its, like, design and concept. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Now, yeah. both of you have skills way broader than the mousetrap, uh, you know, allows. We're talking to a soprano, is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm, yeah. This is my first uh, straight play. <laughs> right. I usually do musicals, Yeah. And what sort of uh, feedback do you get from live feedback from the audience in a, say, a murder mystery as opposed to what you're used to? Oh, this is um, is such an exciting thing to be a part of because the audience isn't necessarily passive in in this um, production. It's you're involved, you can hear them trying to figure it out, especially <laughs> the front few rows, you hear the whispers. And so to be able to, um, throughout the entire show, hear the audience um, is very different to a musical way that you just sort of get the applause or the cheers after every number. So this is um, a very different experience and, and I'm absolutely loving it. It's something I want to do a bit more of. Yeah. And, Jack, like, you're a sword fighter? Sword fighter. Where'd you get that? Hell yeah. <laughs> Where did you get that? Have I seen you down at Prince's Park on a Friday evening yes. in your garb? With my rapiers. And, yeah. Um, I suppose so. Yeah. yeah, I did a, I did a, I did a really hectically combative version of Romeo and Juliet. So maybe that's where that comes yeah, from. But yeah. Don't take me up on it. Like I, I think we found the murderer. Yeah, could be, could be. Uh, and and what does it mean to to be a part of something historic? Did did you say? See, I know that there's a slight adaptation. You know, see how they run or whatever. What's your relationship with that film? I mean, it's it's. It's related, but it's got nothing to do with the play, does it? Yeah, no, I, well, I think what's interesting is that it, uh, 
it was the the film was set in on the set of well a fake set of the mousetrap um i don't know it was just really fun to watch the film and know everything that was sort of happening behind the scenes mm. uh, did you see it yeah i did yeah. yeah i loved it i think it that movie is just a testament to the place that the mousetrap and agatha christie has in pop culture yeah. and how relevant she still is i mean you know, you had to kind of know what the play was to be able to enjoy that movie. And as yeah. far as I saw that, it was an amazing movie and a lot of people really loved it. So it's that kind of just was a testament. It came out, what, when we were in rehearsals and stuff? And yeah. Yeah, which was huge. But it really showed us, like, it, this is a huge cultural phenomenon, yeah. the mousetrap. Has so. it given you a taste, both of you, for more Agatha Christie? Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> love it. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, I suppose I also want to know the audiences, we're getting used to kind of being in public and like behaving ourselves or can you hear all the chip rustling? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, I think <laughs> there's one one piece of advice is just do remember to turn your mobile phones off. Yeah. Um, I mean, we always announce that at the be- beginning, but... There's always no, one. Yeah, there's yeah. always one. Alarm or... <laughs> no Red Rock Deli chips either. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are particularly Too crispy. Crunchy. That's true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to you guys. And just finally, because I suppose that what's iconic is that the audience is asked to keep a secret. Yeah. What do you think that says about the play and audiences, that it's such a well-kept secret after 70 years? Well, I think it's fascinating the fact that people do really hold the secret close to their heart because we have people returning to the show who have seen it on the West End um, and they come and see our show and they've actually forgotten who the murderer is because they have not uttered a word about it. Um, my grandmother, for instance, saw it on the West End and she she couldn't remember. She couldn't remember who it was because she just kept that secret close to her heart. Mm. And I think it's exciting for them to feel like they're a part of history too by coming to see the show and not revealing um, and knowing that they're helping this show continue on for hopefully another, you know, 30 years where we can reach the 100-year mark. Yeah. Yeah. And just finally, do you know, putting the mousetrap aside completely, do you have any... Uh, tips or motivations or ideas around how to die on stage you must have died on stage yeah oh god it's awful i remember doing it in like i said romeo and juliet you had to die on stage and i remember we used to have a lot of school kids and they would laugh at you trying to die on stage so you got to really sell it you got to really sell it or it looks like a farce mm. we have a bit of laughter in this show i think too when yeah they, when people when die and, and yeah, yeah. I don't know. Stay still, I guess. As still as you can, like. <laughs> Is it possible? No thrashing. Yeah. Simon had a theory that people are uncomfortable about it, and so it's a nervous laugh. Totally. A lot of friends have told me that, that you kind of just feel uncomfortable, especially, mm. yeah, it, it's um, it's a weird thing to see, and obviously it's, it's hard to keep the artifice of it alive. I think it's really, really well done usually, but it's certainly difficult, yeah. <laughs> just keep your belly tucked in. <laughs> Breathe too deeply, I guess. Uh, all right. Well, if you want to catch uh, Lisa Collar and Jack Bannister in The Mousetrap, it's currently on at the Comedy Theatre. For more information, head to themousetrap.com.au. Lisa and Jack, thanks very much. Thank thanks so much thanks for, having for having us. us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.